so yes, I'm freshly back from Barbados, um, visiting family, um, spending some good time in the sunshine, the warmth, on the beach. Um, but primarily, many people don't know this, I go for the food. That's the main reason I go, especially my aunt's cooking. And every Sunday, she cooks this fabulous, like massive feast that basically we have leftovers for like three days. It's fabulous. But last Sundays, I was walking into the kitchen or coming into the house, I heard my mom and my aunt engaged in a very animated conversation. And I didn't worry about it because as Caribbean people, we're just always loud and animated. It's just the way we are. I am the quietest Caribbean person you'll ever meet. Um, but they're, they're going back and forth, and I walk into the kitchen, and my mom says, here comes Reverend Holder. Let's ask him. And I tried to turn around, but it was too late. I was like, what is, what is happening right now? And I said, I'm on vacation. I'm off the clock. She goes, no, no, no. And then she says to me, tell, your, tell my aunt's name is Marva. My mom's name is Rosie. She says, tell Marva what Jesus said about the Sabbath. I was like, huh? Because it's like coming out of left field. You know, it's like she thought I was there for the whole conversation, but I just showed up. What did he say? I said, what do you mean? What is the verse that he said about the Sabbath? I said, you mean the one that Sabbath was made for the man and not man for the Sabbath? And my mom goes, yes, that's the one. What did he mean by that? And I was like, uh, well, my understanding is he's saying that, you know, there's these like rules that we have or these directives in the Bible but what's always more important is how we treat each other. So even though we, we honor the Sabbath, there's a whole backstory leading up to that verse, but even though we honor the Sabbath, that we don't put so much emphasis on honoring the Sabbath that we don't help each other out on the Sabbath, right? So we don't do things that would have been considered work um, on the Sabbath. And, you, you know, the bigger context is, is in, in traditional uh, the traditional Jewish context on the Sabbath, you do nothing. Like, it, it's downtime, and less downtime as is more honoring God on that day. So you don't do any work, there's no play, there's a day dedicated to honoring God. And you don't do anything else on that day. And there were, you know, you read stories in the Bible and, and even in uh, times today where people so adhere to that that, that you know, other folks might need some help. We're like, nope, Sabbath, we can't do anything. And Jesus is saying, no, it's more important that we help each other out and support each other than following the rule. So, you know, I kind of say that, to which my mom says, exactly, that's what it's about. So stop giving me a hard time for working on Sundays. <laughs> to which I say to my mom, yes, but the thing is, doesn't matter what day you take the Sabbath, you have to take a Sabbath. To which my aunt goes, yes, that's what I was saying. <laughs> to which my mother says, I take the Sabbath when I sleep at night. <laughs> and that's what I said. What? No. Like I said, like the five, six hours that you get at night is not the Sabbath. To which my aunt says, see, and all of a sudden they go back and forth. I was able to slip out of the kitchen unscathed. <laughs> But, but there was this whole thing, right? Just go back and forth. 
And, and, and it made me realize, like, like anything else, there's, there's often these you know, directives, invitations, uh, whatever you want to call them. And, and what we tend to do as human beings is we, we tend to focus on, gravitate on the ones or the, the meanings or the interpretations that support where we already are. So for a lot of us, it's not so much that we, 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 we see it, we read it, we hear a new meaning or interpretation and go, oh, well, that's different from what I believe, so let me open up to what the new thing might be. For many of us, sometimes we go like, no, let me just take the stuff that already feels good, that I already believe, that supports my already established narrative. That brings me to today and this weekend. We're honoring the life and the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who I don't need to explain who he is to anybody in this room. We all know who he is the work that he did, what he stood for. He continues to inspire us today. But what I found interesting over the years, especially being parts of unity communities, and I raise my hand as one guilty of perpetuating this as well, is that we tend, we tend to spend a lot of time and attention sharing the things that he said that we are most comfortable with, that are the least disruptive, the ones that challenge us the least, but they sound good nonetheless. I'll give you a few examples. Here's what he said. I've decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. We love that one, right? Because we're in unity. God is love. We use love as synonymous with God. So that, that resonates with us. Uh, here's another one. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. We generally love all his love quotes. A lot. Hatred confuses life. Love harmonizes it. Hatred darkens life. Love illuminates it. These are the ones we throw around a lot, that we, we, we share the memes on social media a lot, and we feel that we are connected to him and his message in that way. We love the I have a dream speech. Especially that last part, which you should know by now, wasn't part of his original speech. He like improvised that whole thing at the end, and people loved it. And that's a part of that speech for the march in Washington for jobs that we quote the most, because it's the most inviting. It's the one that encompasses all wherever we are at. And he saw love as this divine quality, but also an imperative for us to live out. So those parts we resonate with well. But if you're going to take Martin Luther King, you have to take him all. You have to take all of what he said and how he challenged us, especially how he challenged those of you with fear-colored skin. He said, the ultimate tragedy is not the oppression and cruelty by bad people, but the silence over that by good people. He who accepts evil is as much involved, he who passively accepts evil is as much involved in it as he who helps to perpetuate it. He who accepts evil without protesting against it is really cooperating with it. We don't hear that thrown around a lot, especially in unity communities. There comes a time when we must take a position that is neither safe nor politic nor popular, but one must take it because it is right. 
Now, as a minister, this is the one that I go like, ooh, because, you know, as ministers, we are taught, you don't talk about politics in church, ever, right? Because that's divisive, because you don't know who's there. And, and, and I've had people say, like, I don't want to hear about politics from the pulpit. I come to church to get away from that. So we don't talk about that. Here's, here's a tough one. The Negro's great stumbling block in his stride towards freedom is not the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. A negative peace, which is the absence of tension. You know, we in unity love to be comfortable. And again, throwing myself under the bus, and as they always say, it's a big bus, there's room under it. If you want to join me, come on. <laughs> but, but, but being the first few years of being a minister and being a unity teacher, this was, this was me, right? Don't say anything too provocative. Don't talk about politics. Keep everything nice and comfortable. Why then people won't get upset, no one will leave church, we don't lose money, all that sort of stuff, right? That was the narrative from which I operated. But that's not what he invites us into. There comes a time when we must take a position that is neither safe, nor politic, nor popular, but one must take it because it is right. And what do we mean by taking it? Taking it doesn't just mean reading it and believing it or sharing a handy meme. I write a column in Unity Magazine called Love and Justice for All, where I talk about these issues, especially as it relates to spiritual communities. And I wrote about this in the, in the latest issue, January, February issue, and, and one of the things I mentioned in the column was, was that uh, if Martin Luther King Jr. was alive today, he might have been a little bit heartened over the last couple years to see how people of all races, colors, and creeds rose up in protest, especially after the murder of George Floyd, arguably many, many years too late. But hey, you know what? We take what we can get. So people rose up and were protesting and were in the streets and, and were, and were changing, changing laws and stuff. And he would have been heartened by that. I think he would have said that, yes, the moderate was no longer being silent and rising up. And many churches did a great job of looking at their core values and things and, and, and changing them and, 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 and putting attention on diversity and inclusion. But one of the things I wrote in the article was, well, that's all great. That's just the start. That's just the beginning. That's scratching the surface. And I had a reader email me and ask, well, my church did those things. What should we do now? What do we do at this time? I'll answer that question, but little segue. In case you didn't know this, when you, as a white person, ask a person of color, help me fix racism, what you are doing is you're placing an undue burden on them. What you are saying to them is, I recognize that we live in a system where you're already oppressed, where you're already struggling, 
And now I'm going to ask you to do more by helping me fix the problem. Tell me what to do. If you are truly committed to creating a world that works for all, a world centered around anti-racism, that's a no-no. How do you find out what to do? Ask Dr. Google. Like literally Google, how do I end racism? How do I be anti-racist? What can I do as a church to help solve racism? You can Google these questions and come up with a host of things rather than ask a person of color. That being said, that being said, I've made it my life's work to answer those questions. So I don't mind doing it. I didn't mind being asked. But I'm just giving you, like, in general, a sense. If you want to find something on you, you go like, you know, ooh, I know, I know a person of color. Let me go ask them. No, fight that impulse. <laughs> fight that impulse. Okay? Unless you have a prior agreement with them. I'll get to that in a minute. All right? So, so, one of the, so my response to this, uh, and this is up on my blog, my response to this was, was a list of things that I, 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 I borrowed from a book called Nice Racism, uh, How Progressive White People Perpetuate Racial Harm by Robin DiAngelo. You don't recognize the book title, you might recognize the other one she wrote uh, called White Fragility. Um, and Robin DiAngelo is a white anti-racist woman, primarily writing to a white audience. So I highly encourage you to get the book, it's called Nice Racism. If you want to jump into a book study, I'm actually starting one online uh, this week. I got a pile of cards there. You can get the cards, hit the website, and join the book study. So she creates this list. And I don't need to reinvent the wheel. This is a good list, and it's, again, a list directed primarily to a white audience. So here's, here's a couple of things that you can do, both as individuals and as a community. One, donate a percentage of your income to racial justice organizations led by people of color. That last part's important, led by people of color. Two, when you're organizing events, make sure that they're accessible and scholarships are available for people of color. Three, donate proceeds from such events to racial justice organizations, again, led by people of color. Seek out and choose to do business with service providers who are people of color. Attend affinity groups. You all know what affinity groups are? So here's the thing. Anti-racism work is work for all of us to do. It is spiritual work. It is challenging work. And we all have to do it, no matter what we look like. Some of that work we have to do together, side by side. But some of that work is important that we do in groups with people who look like us. Whether we're black, whether we're white, whether we're Hispanic, it's important sometimes that we have to be in separate groups. And that's the thing that's uncomfortable for some spiritual communities. What do you mean you want to go in separate groups to work on talk about racism? That's not helpful. That's divisive. You're perpetuating the problem. 
It's a fascinating take because last I checked, I don't remember the complaint being made about perpetuating the problem of sexism by having men's and women's group or homophobia by having an LGBTQ-centered group. But somehow this one is a little bit challenging. But sometimes you have to do this work separately because I don't know if you know this, but if you are a white person, when you walk into a room, especially a room in which people of color are in, it changes the power dynamic. It changes the comfort level of people of color. It doesn't matter if you believe it or not. It doesn't matter if you are the nicest person, like so many of you are in this room. It doesn't matter. It's just what happens because of the nature of the society in which we live. And as a result, sometimes people of color don't feel comfortable saying all they want to say. And then you, as a white person, don't feel comfortable in saying what, what you want to say because you might be afraid of offending. So now we got two groups of people who are really afraid to say what they want to say for fear of upsetting the other person. That's not how we get it done. So sometimes there's a sense of safety for both groups of people to be in groups with just other people who look like them to help work through some of these issues first and then come together. To find an affinity group, if you truly want to, to see where you are with this, find some affinity groups to participate in. Again, I lead a couple of them twice a month. And sometimes they are juicy and loving and hilarious, and sometimes they are awkward as hell. <laughs> but guess what? That's how we live the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., by stepping into the discomfort, leaning into it, not shying away from it, by being brave, by being vulnerable, to say, I don't know what I don't know. And to be in that context. And the other things you can do is, and this is where it gets interesting, find both a person of color and a white person to be an accountability partner. What do I mean by an accountability partner? Someone who you have an agreement with to go, when I say or do things, and I don't know that I've just perpetuated some sort of racial harm, I give you permission to call me on it. I give you permission to invite me into another alternative, to see where, I've, where I didn't know what I was doing. And I can come to you. Oh, by the way, by the way, if you have a person of color who's your accountability partner and you are coming to them for help, please offer to compensate them so that, again, this is not undue labor that you are placing on them. Again, Dr. Google will tell you all these things. But when we talk about living and honoring the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., again, it's not just about knowing who he was and what he wrote and what he said. It's about actually doing what he did. It's about becoming committed to doing anti-racism work, to being an anti-racist. 
which doesn't always look like you're marching with a sign. It also looks like who you vote for in the booth. It also looks like what conversations you have with your friend and your family members in the moment. It looks like stepping into your own discomfort and doing your own self-education and your own self-accountability to ask yourself how, not if, but how am I perpetuating this system of inequity? And you may think that you're not, because you may already be doing a bunch of these things on this list. But the truth of the matter is, as long as we live in this system, especially if you're a white body and you live in this system, and this system continues to operate until we do what Martin Luther King Jr. invited us to do, which is to change the system, you're unconsciously benefiting from it and you're unconsciously perpetuating it. And I know that's tough to hear. I know that's hard to hear. And I don't mind telling you, I just had three weeks vacation. I'm rested up. I'm ready to go. I don't mind being, being, making you a little uncomfortable right now because why we have to lean into the discomfort and we have to hear it and we have to squirm because only then will we know how we are being affected by it. Here's the last Martin Luther King quote I'll leave you with. The church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critic of the state, never its tool. If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, what do I mean by prophetic zeal? The enthusiasm and the energy of stating how things should be. If we don't do this, and I don't mean just amongst ourselves, because it's really good to come on Sunday morning and gather and sing with people who think like you and say the things that you like to hear, but are you truly embodying them and living them when you walk through those doors Monday through Saturday? Are you doing it with your circle of friends? Are you doing it with your family? Are you being that stand for justice? Or, or are you content? to let this be an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority? What do you want it to be? That's up to you guys. But it starts with a careful self-examination. It starts by every day asking yourself, not just this weekend, but every day. Am I living the legacy of one of the greatest voices this country has ever known? Am I living the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.?
Let's take this into some meditation now. So if you're comfortable, I invite you to gently close the eyes. Take a deep breath. And simply check in with yourself. Breathe, center. And notice if in any way you are uncomfortable right now with what you've heard. For whatever reasons. Perhaps you're sitting feeling like you've been accused. Perhaps you're sitting feeling, this is not the place I should be hearing this. Perhaps you feel a need to defend. Just notice where you're at right now. Just notice it. Without judgment, without trying to change it, notice how you feel. And simply pause. And if there's any places of tension in your body, breathe into those places. Breathe and invite those places of tension in your body to relax. Acknowledge that we live in a time in a world that does not work for all. And acknowledge that for each and every one of us, as we continue to live in this world that does not work for all, because it continues to not work for all, in some ways we are contributing to that. So our question becomes, what is mine to do to create a world that works for all? What is mine to do to create a world that works for all? Where am I still attached? How do I still benefit from the world as is? Are my thoughts, beliefs, and actions in alignment to create a world that works for all? How do I embody love? How do I embody justice? How do I become the manifestation of oneness? 
Love is our essence. How do we be the essence of love? In every day, in every moment. We sit open to the divine guidance, to the divine invitation, knowing that we already have and are all that we need to be that embodiment, to live as the face of love and of justice. We are that prophetic zeal, declaring living and being the world as it should be. So let us rest for a few moments in the silence, inviting from deep within the divine strength and wisdom and zeal to anchor us as we move to create a world that truly works for all. So, as you leave today, remember to affirm, I already am and have all 
I need to create a world that works for all. I already am and have all I need to create a world that works for all. I simply need to stand on my convictions and be in action and live it. So it is.